On today's show, we're going to try something new, something so huge I had to upgrade my Zoom account just to accommodate the hugeness. Pod Foods was created to mix things up in the world of food distribution, an industry of legacy brands and big, mean, entrenched players notorious for squeezing the little guy. We couldn't decide which co-founder to have on, so we got both. Hence, the Zoom upgrade. We're always looking for feedback, so let us know what you think of the three-person conversation. Email smallbizgoneviral at gmail, go through our website, or hit us up on our Instagram at smallbizgoneviral, and follow us while you're there. We pump out weekly updates on what's going on in the world, along with some nerdy infographics to help us all understand the big picture, and of course, how it applies to small businesses. Let's get started. This is Small Biz Gone Viral, a podcast with a simple message. If you are a small business owner struggling through the pandemic, you are not alone. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, small business owner myself, and I basically created this show for all the other small business people out there who worked hard to build something great, grinding it out, making the necessary sacrifices, poised for greatness as of February only to have the dark 2020 cloud come along and rain on the parade. And on that note, if you know a business owner going through a bit of a tough time, please share this podcast with them. Even if they don't listen to it, I promise you they'll appreciate the thought. And with that, let's get to our fun fact. Yay! The current wait for the U.S. presidential election result and the losing candidate's concession speech has been the second longest since the 1960s. The 2000 election saw Al Gore versus George W. Bush in a matchup that had America wait 36 days and a recount that was started and stopped and started and ultimately stopped by the U.S. Supreme Court before we got that speech. That year included the famous, or infamous, hanging Chad, thousands of black voters mistakenly marked as felons and thereby prevented from voting, and the media mistakenly calling the race in Gore's favor on election night, which led to a change in the way races are now called. It waits to be seen how long it will take this time around, though as of this recording, at 8.45 a.m. on Friday, November 6th, Joe Biden just took the lead in Georgia and Pennsylvania and is holding narrow leads in Arizona and Nevada. That combination of states would put Biden well ahead of the 270 electoral votes needed to win. Three lawsuits filed by the Trump campaign were thrown out yesterday by courts in Michigan, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, though I'm sure there will be many more to follow. Based on the demeanor of Trump's short speech yesterday in which he aired some false conspiracy theories, based on the demeanor of Trump's short speech yesterday in which he aired some egregiously false conspiracy theories, there are no indications that we can expect a concession speech anytime soon, though technically we don't really need one. Now on to facts and figures. Through the chaos of the election, the stock market enjoyed its best week since April, and unemployment numbers in October moved in the right direction with the national unemployment rate dropping from 7.6 to 6.9%. That's where the good news ends. The U.S. and Europe have both seen huge increases in COVID cases recently. The U.S. is averaging close to 100,000 new cases each day and just set a new record November 6th, topping 130,000 cases. Remember, just two months ago, we were down to 35,000 new daily cases and seemed to have a handle on this. As a result of the huge rate of increase, 
3.4 million Americans, or 1% of the U.S., currently have COVID-19. Currently. We may all have pandemic fatigue, but now is not the time to be cavalier, as three times as many people are being diagnosed now than just 60 days ago. And that is not just because of more testing. A first for the show, today we have two guests, co-founders Fiona and Larissa of Pod Foods. Originally from Singapore, Fiona came to San Francisco and started a cookie company together with her co-founder, Larissa. Frustrated with the incumbent system of food distribution, which revolved around outdated technologies and, trust me on this one, hidden costs, they pivoted and decided to create a distribution network to enable products to sell to retail stores. Leveraging on their experience as a food manufacturer, Fiona and Larissa built Pod Foods, a B2B, business-to-business, marketplace that leverages data, technology, and existing logistics infrastructure to provide both stores and vendors a more affordable and accessible way to source and sell products. Full disclosure, my coconut energy bar company, Rickaroons, just started working with Pod Foods. I was so happy to find them because they really are providing an easy, no-fine-print alternative to the bigger, legacy players notorious for squeezing every last penny out of customers. Or small businesses. Dare I say they are democratizing the food distribution business? Fiona and Larissa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Hi. So I'm really excited to talk with you today because I'm such a believer in what you're doing. And I feel like I'm kind of, I'm, I'm the founder of a small brand with no leverage with the big distributors and I, I get dictated to by them. So I feel like I'm, I'm like a poor villager cheering on Robin Hood, AKA pod foods. <laughs> Uh, I also know that your business model takes a little explaining to those outside of our industry, so we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, so we can identify the voices, let's have you two tell us a quick something about yourselves, starting with the winner of our coin flip, uh, Fiona. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Fiona. Uh, I come from Singapore originally, moved to San Francisco six years ago. Now I live in Chicago and started this company with Larissa. And Larissa? And my name is Larissa, and I moved to San Francisco from Philadelphia area where I grew up. And then I moved out of San Francisco, <laughs> but I met Fiona there and we started this company together. Okay, great. And let's do the, the quick uh, synopsis or, or kind of description of what is the world of food distribution? What does it mean to be a distributor? especially in the natural foods industry? So the grocery stores and other online retailers that you might buy products from source food products from somewhere. It doesn't just magically show up on the shelf. <laughs> so when you go into a grocery store, there are buyers in that grocery store that work for the grocery store that are buying products from distributors. And there are other ways that they can buy, but typically they buy from these big distributors that consolidate ordering. And so if you're a little small food brand, we used to have one, we had a cookie company. We would make our cookies and then we would try and sell our products into these retail stores 
but the retail stores want to be buying from a distributor. So it's really that middleman that's buying and selling from the manufacturers. So basically, if you're making cookies, the distributor will buy from you and the grocery store will buy from the distributor. And then as the consumer, you walk into the grocery store and you buy that thing off the shelf. But it's a lot more, it has a lot more ramifications than that when you go to a larger scale because the way in which that business model is profitable requires huge volumes. So to be a little cookie company, it's not as easy as just selling a, a couple of pallets off to this distributor and then your work is done. There's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you are preaching to the choir here. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I say that a lot on the show, but this is probably the one that, that hits home the most. So let's go ahead and talk just a little bit about how you your, your first joint venture together, which was a cookie company. How did that get started? So that started um, also with Singapore because I had a friend who was working in San Francisco and he was in the same company as Larissa then. And he brought this Singaporean cookie. Um, it's a cookie made out of green peas. And that time was where everyone was trying to look for healthier products, better for you products. And there wasn't a lot on the shelf because the whole good food movement was just starting and people were, uh, especially in San Francisco, really jumping on, on the trend of healthy eating. So we thought, hey, there might be a market for a cookie that is gluten-free uh, or vegan and with, made with peas, which is then high in protein and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we started selling that cookie. We started with a Kickstarter campaign and that went really well. And we were like, wow, there's demand. Let's do this. And then Larissa and I and that other uh, friend of ours, um, the three of us, we started a cookie company together. And how many years did, did that go? That went on for about three years. Um, it went on for three years when we finally, and it led us to think of pot foods because of all the distribution challenges that we encountered and learned. And we said, hey, you know what? There's like a much more important and uh, bigger thing that we can do and want to do. <clears throat> the mission really of both companies uh, is the same. We, for Pot Foods and with Green Pea Cookie, we want to bring better food to the world. That's what we want to do. And we're able to do this in a much larger way with Pot Foods. Yeah. What were some of the issues that you had in trying to grow uh, green pea cookies with regards specifically to working with those bigger distributors? So with green pea cookie, we didn't work with the big distributors. We started out in the Bay Area just trying to sell our cookies directly into these grocery stores. But we got a lot of pushback initially because if I'm a retailer, that buyer in the store, it's really cumbersome to be ordering directly from each little manufacturer that's coming into the store. And there's a reason why they order from these big distributors and it's mainly consolidation because they can just place one purchase order and fill up a whole bunch of space on their shelves instead of just one or two SKUs. In our case, we had uh, five different versions of our cookies. So we didn't work with them. Uh, that was one of the reasons that we were starting to look into distribution was because we went out there and we, we're hearing from the retailers that you need to be working with a distributor. And we couldn't afford it at the time. I mean, it was gonna be 
a lot of hefty chargebacks and hidden fees and the margins that we had as small manufacturers weren't there yet. We were looking into some regional distributors, but meanwhile, we were hustling our cookies into these stores anyway and asking the buyers to place the orders directly with us. But that in the end drives very little revenue where it did for us because it meant that we had to go walking around the city for $20 at a time delivering a case of cookies. And that's a real cost, which at the time we probably didn't take into account as much as we should have or could have, which was our own time and our own uh, days worth spent doing deliveries when we could have been focusing on production or selling more. And what are the types of fees that you, why, why is there kind of a barrier to entry to working with larger distributors? So the distributors, they have a model of buying and selling the products. What, and what that means is that they will have to make the decision to make that upfront investment into buying a, a new brand. Um, so when working with a distributor, you have to first convince them that your product is going to sell and convince them that you are already in uh, maybe like 40 different retailers or something like that before they will take you on. And then they will buy your product at the lowest price that they possibly can so that they can sell it off at the highest margin that they possibly can. And there's sort of a chicken and the egg thing that you just described there where you have to get into 40 stores but a lot of the stores will only buy from a distributor. So as a, as a really small brand, it can be difficult basically to align both of those things because you have to go to 40 stores, find the right 40 stores who are willing to buy from you directly, at least in the short term, and then, go, and then you go to a distributor and the distributor, they don't want to build a brand. They want to just do the, the least amount of work possible and basically just deliver it. They want to they want to say, "Hey, hand me a bunch of business to make it worth my while and then I'll go do it." And the hard part for a small brand is if you're if you are selling directly to a store, you're selling at the wholesale price and you're probably making a 50% margin. As soon as you hand over all of that business over to a distributor, you're cutting that margin in half because you're we'll just say for easy terms, you're splitting that with the distributor. So now instead of making 50% margins, you're making 25% margins, right? You're that, that, or that margin is cut in half. So you, yeah. Um, so that is, it's a, it's a tough chicken and the egg thing. And as a small business who's doing your, your own sales, it's, it's really difficult to figure out like which distributors to work with, where to put your time, where to put your resources. And like Larissa said, it's difficult to account for the, the time that it takes you to make all of those deliveries yourself, where you're making like literally $20 for driving across the city to, to deliver the cookies. So with right. all, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that one. I know that one firsthand. Uh, and I guess I should probably disclose, like, we work with you guys now. My, my full-time job, Brickaroons, we now work with Pod Foods. And when I first found out about it, I was like over the moon ecstatic because the pricing is really simple. The distribution model is simple. And it's, it's really fair. There are no 
there are no hidden fees. So I've been talking for a, a, a little bit longer now than I wanted to, but and, and I warned you guys before we started this interview that this could happen just because I'm I'm such a fan of of your product essentially. But before we go more into pod foods, just real quick, hit on what are the chargeback fees and the things that can really eat into those margins um, that are already going to be tight when a when a brand is working with a distributor. So brands have this big starry-eyed thing where they just want to get into as many stores as they can and grow their business. And it makes sense, but uh, having this goal of working with one of the big broadline distributors often backfires if the brand is not ready for that distributor. And the reason is because you think you're signing up to just sell your products at that low price and then they're going to resell it at a high price. But there are all of these other pieces of it that appear in your contract. And one of them is called chargebacks or buybacks. Basically, you'll sell your product. And if it doesn't sell through at the agreed upon turn rate, then they're going to turn around and sell it back to you at wholesale price. So you actually end up buying your own product back, paying for your own product. Uh, They'll do things like saying your product needs to be on promotion for a certain number of months of the year buy a whole bunch of product while it's on promotion, even if it's not going to be sold on promotion. And then they'll turn around and sell it back to you when it doesn't sell through at that given rate. And they'll sell it to you back at full wholesale price. So that means like it could cost you a dollar to make and you're accustomed to getting it for, to selling it to the distributor for a dollar 25 and then they sell it for a dollar 50 to the grocery store. And what you're saying is you could usually sell it for a dollar 25 but on on the on the mandated promotion, you have to sell it to them for maybe a dollar ten. So now you're only making ten cents. They buy so much of it that then when it doesn't sell per your contract, you have to buy it back from them at that full wholesale price of a dollar fifty. And then now you're stuck with all this short dated product that you that you can't sell. And you basically, you paid to have it made and then you had to buy it yourself, thus make it less losing 40 cents for every product or for every unit that you sold to them. Right. And, you know, it's all a leverage game. It varies depending on your brand and what you can say versus what the distributor can say. But in the end, there are so many pieces that are just not transparent. Um, that you don't really know what you're signing up for. Another one is that you'll go and you think you make the sale, you think everything's dandy, but you just get an invoice that has all of these deductions on it. Um, You think you're going to get paid for your product, but you start to see all of these line items that have just been taken off that you're paying for and you can't do anything about it. And we've had many conversations with brands that would spend days going through each line item, which again, that's somebody's time that it's either the founder's time or it's somebody that you're paying to do that. It's a real cost, but it's worth it because they'll get these invoices down from say $30,000 to $400 for what you actually owe in deductions. And we saw that and we felt like it didn't make any sense because not only was this creating this nightmarish situation for a business to grow, but it was also just missing this opportunity to leverage data in a way that was adding value back into the industry. Or basically, if we could be transparent, we could share the information about even just where your product is moving. 
and better align incentives with our business model instead of squeezing everybody out at the bottom and squeezing everybody out at the top, then everybody could succeed. So that's the that's what we started to create when we started to think about distribution a little bit differently. Which leads me to my next question. What is it that Pod Foods does that is so different from the other behemoths in the industry? Well, we um, firstly, we don't do the buy and sell. And we have uh, we have our brands list their product on our website and then we sell their product and every time their product sells, we take a percent uh, of that sale. And that's really our dairy is to the cost. Of course, like if the brand wants to warehouse with us on consignment, so the product sits in our warehouse, uh, there's a, a monthly fee for the pallet of product that they're storing, but it's a pretty reasonable fee as well. Um, and we don't have things such as chargebacks or uh, deductions or anything like that. Uh, given that our incentives are aligned with the brand and we want them to succeed and to sell more, uh, we do our very best to uh, have them be in as many doors as possible. Uh, we do our best to sell them at the highest price that we can, well, rather the brand sets the price that they can sell, that, that they want to sell for. So instead of us saying, okay, your, your product's going to sell for $5, the brand gets to say, oh, you know, I want to sell my product for $6 and that's their own decision. Um, and then promotions are also flexible. Like we don't mandate any promotions. You can choose to have promotions or not. Obviously having promotions help the product sell more. Uh, so things like that, that we do to sell our brands and align incentives, which is really important for us. So basically you align incentives and you have a really simple fee structure that allows smaller businesses in particular to be able to accurately forecast what revenues will be coming in. Yeah, that's uh, the basic of what we do. Yeah. Um, but the real, uh, the real thing that we're trying to do here or that we're investing in here is uh, really a data play. So what we want to do is be able to capture all of these data and to see uh, where all these brands are being sold into and what retailers are buying regularly and the pattern of purchasing and be then able to target uh, recommendations very strongly to the, to, the, to the retailers or to the buyers that are uh, interested in certain brands. So if a meat buyer, for example, we wouldn't be sending him uh, beverages to the meat buyer, we'll be sending um, perhaps uh, deli products or cheese products or uh, packaged meat products, things like that. So being able to do that also increases the visibility of our brands into the right, uh, to the right eyes and to the right accounts and also then generate sales. So a lot of data is at work here. Just one more reason why you are better than the other options in the, in the industry is that you are actively trying to, because, because incentives align, it is in your interest to grow the business uh, because you can't charge you because it's not in your contracts to charge back if the product doesn't sell. You're only getting paid if it's really selling. Exactly. Yeah. So we want everyone on our platform to succeed, whether it's brands or retailers. Right. Uh, so just as we kind of start to wrap up the the pre-COVID set here, what uh, kind of benchmarks? What what were you looking forward to? in 2020 before the pandemic was ever on anybody's radar? 2020 was always going to be about growing the business. The path has changed, but 
when we started the year, it was all about being able to establish a way that we could predictably expand into new regions. So in 2019, we would land in a specific new location because we started in one. We started in the Bay Area. The next one was Chicago. We found our logistics. We got it all set up. We found a team and we would create these little regional hubs of pod foods. And then in early 2020, we pretty much unraveled that so that we were able to launch anywhere and grow with our brands and grow with our retailers. So that's a lot of internal operational change that we probably don't need to get into. But the end goal was being able to grow with our customers and help our customers succeed without our growth being the inhibiting factor at any point. So at the at the end of 2019, what was your headcount and how many distribution centers did you have? At the end of 2019, we had four distribution centers and our headcount must have been something like 25. Oh, wow. Okay. And is that, and is that headcount, is that all in the U.S.? No. No, we have a team of engineers in Hanoi, Vietnam. Okay, so, so they're, oper- they're basically building your website uh, and, and working on that data play. And then you have a team in the U.S. that is doing what? Sales marketing operations, um, uh, product management. And finance. Finance. And, and finance, of course. And the distribution centers, are those... Are, are those uh, yours or are you sharing space with existing uh, facilities? So we don't own any of the infrastructure. We work with third-party logistics providers. Genius. So it's third-party warehouses, third-party trucks. And then because we're aggregating all of this volume, brands, we're able to get better deals than anybody would as a one-off. And then that right. helps everybody succeed. And then that also allows you to scale with with demand as needed. Right. Perfect. Okay. Uh, and with that, we are going to move into our mid-COVID set. But before we do that, as always, it's time for our unsponsor. Uh, the unsponsor is an awesome company run by awesome people who produce an awesome product. Fiona and Larissa, who is today's show not brought to us by? Oh, United Sodas. United Sodas is one of our new brands. We're really excited to be working with them. They make a really good tasting soda that is, of course, better for you. And it's a new brand out of Brooklyn, New York, and you can buy them online. Or in some retail locations. Or there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And with those retail locations, it happened to be perhaps in the Bay Area and Southern California and Chicago? Yes. What a coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And we're going to go ahead and move now into our mid-COVID set and talk about how COVID-19 has affected uh, pod foods and what you are doing to adjust and adapt. So let's start with March of 2020 and basically walk me through what some of the initial impacts were on your business? So for us, um, it was pretty interesting because we had to react really quickly since we were distributing to grocery stores. So when the lockdown happened, or rather the news of the lockdown happened, and there was a lot of panic buying in stores, 
And we, as a distributor, uh, had to get ready for that. And so uh, I remember we were all just frantically messaging some of our brands that we knew were going to sell really quickly, like pasta and bread and all that kind of uh, staple products. And we said, hey, uh, get, do, you have, do you have more inventory? Please send that to our warehouse right away, things like that. And the ones that could, they... Uh, they sent us whatever they have and then we were really just selling out to all our retailers like all our retailers were placing massive orders for these brands um, then on the other hand we saw that products that would normally sell really well like grab and go products um, like for example wraps or sandwiches or something like that <laughs> i'm just raising my hand for <laughs> those grab and go products yeah like energy bars, yep, yep. <laughs> things like that. They started to see a really significant slowdown in sales. Um, and, and and that was surprising. So we, we obviously had to answer some questions from our brands about what was happening. Uh, and at the same time, reacting to that change by making sure that we are sending the retailers what they ordered and what they want. Um, so that was March, really. Oh, and also that we used to have a lot of in-person sales. So we would have our salespeople walk into a store to try and sell or say hi to the buyer, build that relationship, things like that. But all of that had to stop for a while um, because we didn't want anyone getting COVID and you know, we weren't really allowed to do that. Of course. And that made us have to rethink our sales strategy. So what adjustments did you make w within that sales strategy? So a big part of it was the product selection and being able to take a more consultative approach on the retailer side, where instead of coming in and showing them all the cool new things that we thought were cool and new and we wanted them to get on the shelf, it was much more about how could we support you because we know that you're being inundated right now. And sometimes uh, it would be the staple products like the bread or something like that, but sometimes it would just be about simplifying the whole thing. And in that way, COVID became pretty much an accelerant. Uh, of course, you know, there, some people saw spikes, some people saw valleys in their, their sales. But overall, the problem that we had initially set out to solve for retailers, which was being able to make an easy way to order these really cool kinds of products, was very pronounced. Because if they didn't have an easy way to order these cool products, they wouldn't order them. And you saw a whole bunch of articles coming out, like nobody wants emerging brands anymore, basically. <laughs> and we didn't find that to be the case, but it was definitely the case if a retailer had no easy way of ordering these brands because they were struggling to keep up even with their major distributors. They're not going to be spending, you know, those precious hours in the day while they're running around the store or trying to keep things stocked placing orders on someone who's going to bring by the SKUs that are going to take up this much foot on their shelf. That's, it didn't make any economic sense with that. And so what we did was we would go into these retailers and, and basically accelerate our pitch back to them and ride the wave as, we, as we, they saw it coming through. And then on the brand side, you know, bringing on products actively that these retailers were asking for we started to focus a lot more on the brand side and bringing on the products that were going to meet the retailer's needs instead of just bringing on products that we thought were cool. And then the last piece is really being able to take that remote sales approach. So instead of going into the store, we could be a lot more systematic with calling and emailing and having more of a process 
before any sort of appointment was set up. And so you, you might, one thing that I heard in there was that you think, or that maybe that you were seeing or hearing that no one wanted emerging brands, but that wasn't necessarily your experience. Did I hear that right? Well, that was because there were articles that said, oh, everyone was looking for comfort food. So sales of like Oreos and Cheetos and all that went really up at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, which is sort of true, right? Because everyone was just like stocking up on snacks and things like that. Then, but I think the reality is that there are, there's always people out there looking for healthier snacks. So that kind of came back in full force um, a couple of months into the pandemic when everyone was a bit sick of Cheetos, I guess. So then, you know, they, they were looking for healthier alternatives. That was going to be my next, my next question was what kind of timeline did you see? So you're, you're saying maybe those first couple of months people were stocking up on all their Nabisco and, and Pepsi line products and, and General Mills. And then maybe a, a couple months in, they kind of woke up and said, maybe I, I shouldn't be eating goldfish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> right. I think it comes back to the idea of uh, affordable luxury. So because everyone was stuck at home, it, it kind of got a bit boring, right, for everyone, feeling kind of claustrophobic and not knowing what to do. And the only place that everyone could really go to was the grocery store. So going to the grocery store sort of became a fun thing to do, like a treat to discover new brands and maybe try a different bag of chips this time, uh, try a different brand of soda. Um, yeah, so that all came back. And then I guess people wanted to just be healthier so that they could take better care of their body and not get sick. So it sounds like some of the, the bigger adjustments that you had to make was if you were, let's say you of the 100% of sales that you were making in February, maybe you saw some some similar total numbers in March and April, but the but the breakdown of that revenue stream was significantly altered, you were going to see some your pasta and your crackers and your, your pantry items go through the roof. And you in the beginning of the pandemic, you saw uh, some of those maybe emerging brands, maybe those kind of took a dive. Am, am I hearing that right? Most of the companies we work with are emerging brands. So it was really just about the breakdown of the category that they were in, where they were in their growth, how easy, how easily they could support the inventory required. So it was definitely a different mix of products that were doing really well in those subsequent months versus before. Right. It was also a different mix of stores because we used to work with a bit more food service and things like that. This still the primary part of our business was grocery. But even within grocery, there are food service things happening on the perimeter of the store. You know, people are buying bagels or bread or something like that. I was going to say, and can you just define what food service is for us real quick? Yeah. So food service would be like a restaurant or a cafe where they're ordering more in bulk and it's less about making sure that the product is packaged in this nice, pretty way for a consumer. <laughs> and so we had a bit of that although the primary part of our business has always been the grocery part. Right. The, the upside potential of grocery is always going to be higher be, just because there are thousands and thousands of goods that are carried. Whereas in food service, you're going to have probably tens, maybe if you're, if it's a, if it's a large place and maybe a hundred or, you know, 
those triple digit, but you're not going to have thousands of products carried. Um, and food service, again, talking from firsthand experience here, I can say that the juice bars, coffee shops, th that industry was hit probably the hardest. I'm, I'm, I guess office snack deliveries would be hit pretty hard as well, or would would be at the top of that list of, of things that have been hit the hardest by COVID. Did you do any delivery to the like Silicon Valley, you know, your, your local Google campus or any places like that? Not so much. Um, no. Okay. Maybe one offs and things like that, but not really as accounts of ours. Okay. So it's a major, it was majority grocery and then food service and then maybe like a small sliver of, of offices or yeah, other yeah. yeah okay um so you we've had a lot of guests on the show who have uh who timed the release of their product or the the start of their um uh, of their business at like january february march uh which is obviously absolutely brutal you guys had been around for a little bit longer were you able to capitalize on the on the PPP at all? No, we didn't apply for that because uh, we are a venture backed company. So we didn't really require those funds quite as much as a lot of other companies do. Um, so yeah, we felt like we didn't really need that. There was no point in trying to take money away from people who really needed it. Right. I know that there were also limitations on the PPP based off of if if you had an investor who was a venture capital firm you could be your head count uh could be taken into or could incorporate the the like the you know, full umbrella of uh of all of the investments made by that that venture firm too i don't know if that applied to you but i just thought that that, that was um kind of interesting so speaking of venture uh were you looking to raise at all in 2020 and was was there any effect on on that raise due to covid yeah we were raising um we weren't really raising it was an internal round primarily um in march right in the middle of it <laughs> so great timing right and the effect was that we ended up making it an internal round and just saying let's just close it off early and raise less so that was the primary change and it affected our hiring plan, but in the end, uh, it affected the hiring plan and it affected how we were going to spend the money internally with different parts of the operation. Mm -hmm. But that was less about the amount raised and more about COVID. So whether we had raised the full amount or part of the amount, um, all of the changes in response were because of the things that were happening with our customers. Right. And when you say an internal round, that means? Existing investors primarily. So it was led by one of our existing investors. And then we brought in some outside money as well. But we had originally planned to spend a little bit more time talking to outside investors after that initial close. We decided not to do that because for a while there, so many VCs shut their doors, even if they said they didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> So they had the the open sign was up, but in reality, they were backing off to to kind of see what was going to happen in the broader economy. Right. Yeah, we we heard that from a couple different people who 
although maybe investors were taking meetings, it seems like people were really pulling back on, on what was a tolerable risk. Exactly. And taking meetings is the right way to put it. I mean, <laughs> they'll just email you and they want to hang out on Zoom because they have nothing else to do. <laughs> so that was <laughs> for a little bit. And, you know, even, even to focus on your business and grow the business. So we just decided to stop raising. Oh, that is so good. Taking meetings. Yes. Just taking your time. <laughs> um, so I believe at one point, uh, Fiona, did, did you have to, did you have to leave at some, at a point during this? Oh, to back to Asia? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't have to. I would want to because, uh, we have a team in Hanoi and, um, I'm kind of still waiting to go back there because the borders are all closed. The Vietnamese government closed the country too. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're like literally not allowed to go back. Yeah. To, to go there to, so right. is it just a lot, lots of Zoom meetings then with the programmers? Yeah, we have our virtual meetings, but it's always good to, you know, see them in person and see how they're doing. There was a period of time that I was also really worried for, uh, for them there. Uh, whether they would get a virus or anything like that because for them there they have to work in an office they don't really work from home um it just it it makes more sense for them that way they tried working from home for a little bit but they prefer the office and then the good thing is the government there has got it all pretty much under control so i'm not so worried now yeah, I don't have the the facts and, and figures in front of me for Vietnam specifically, but I believe they're they're one of the countries that has seen uh, a a relatively low incidence rate. Right, right. So as we kind of start to transition to the the post COVID um, segment of the show, what adjustments are you guys continuing to make that you think would be different had COVID never hit you? I think the timing might have been delayed. Um, overall, we've just been moving steadily towards what we've been trying to build since the beginning. And we've been fortunate with the fact that the industry has so much need right now that we can step in more aggressively and grow faster. But in the end, what we're doing and the things we're trying to accomplish aren't really COVID focused. You know, there was a time when we had opportunity to buy hand sanitizer and sell that through our platform and things like that. And we considered it, but we've been careful to be focused on more of the long term uh, instead of reacting to what's going on, even in the medium term or the medium long term, <laughs> because food is always going to be that essential part of people's lives. So we know that the need is going to be there after COVID, or we expect that it is. So we're just kind of steadily building towards that vision. I wouldn't say that we've made any major shifts in what we're actually building, more just how we're getting there and the timing of things. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about how you reduced the the raise earlier and that you were uh, basically funding inter- with, internally through existing um, relationships and, and and with your investors, and you mentioned that you had adjusted the way you, your hiring schedule. It, how have you have you ended up hiring on those the same kind of headcount that you think you would have otherwise, or have you held back a little bit um, because of the way that COVID is impacting you? I think we definitely held back 
a significant amount, uh, which is great on hindsight because it made us all a lot more efficient. So we are now able to do more things with our existing team and get a lot more efficient uh, with our processes and, and things like that. And we did a lot of automation on, on our end as well to, so that we can reduce the number of people we have to hire. Right. Don't, don't be a robot, build the robot. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Um, and were those positions that it's funny, I, I've, I've heard a lot um, in these interviews with people that one of the upsides, kind of the, the glass half full way of looking at it is that there's been a, a forced streamlining and maximizing of efficiencies because either of a, of a reduction in the ability to raise or just the overall requirements of living through and existing in a pandemic is that you have to do more with less. Do you feel like because of that, that your business will end up being stronger in the long run? I think we learned faster than we otherwise would have in terms of certain things. Like in the previous hiring plan, we would have hired salespeople that would have gone out and spoken to these buyers in person because that's what used to work. We knew from the beginning of the life cycle of the company that that wasn't always what we were going to do but it was needed to get the company off the ground because you can't just launch a website and then hope that someone's gonna find you right <laughs> so we would walk in the store and do it that way and when that became less of a possibility restructuring the sales process and coming up with that new strategy and figuring out tactics that work within that was faster you know we did it faster because we had to and then once we had that figured out then when we would go out and hire people to join the sales team what they're doing with this is very different than going into the store and repeating that full cycle themselves and so it became much more assembly line versus each individual person doing like the whole thing themselves and so it allowed us to learn faster because later, you know, if the company had grown to the size that it is now or, or double and we hired according to a different plan, all of these people's roles would eventually need to shift and change according to something that's more efficient. And so in that way, again, it just acted as an accelerant where we had to look at our processes and optimize for efficiency before hiring instead of hiring because we had to grow and meet these really high targets because again, you know, the VC market was looking for something like that. Instead, we could look at our internal numbers and make sure that we were doing something that was making money and growing in a predictable way. And it became much more about how we were getting there instead of just hitting these numbers. Right. Maybe building a more stable uh, infrastructure poised for that, uh, for that long-term growth without the pressures of, uh, of maximizing growth now at the cost of perhaps stability later, which I think is like kind of the, I'm not sure if it is for you, but it, that's like the, the common, uh, commonly accepted downside of taking outside money is that they, they want a return on that obviously. And they want it, they, they want a, a, a 10 X or a hundred X and they want it soon. And if you fail, that's okay because they have, 20 other investments. And as long as one of them gets that 100x, we're going to be good. If you can, if you can slow things down a little bit, 
you're probably going to increase the likelihood of long-term success. And it sounds like that may have been one of the uh, upsides for you coming out of COVID. Accurate? Accurate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So when we have you back on in like three or four years, are, is, is the goal to basically uh, to supplant and, and kind of take over the, the number one spot uh, in the natural foods world as a distributor? Is it to expand beyond the natural foods? Are you, are you already beyond natural foods or is that kind of where you're starting and then looking to expand from? Well, we hope to be number one, uh, definitely, you know, the sooner the better, maybe in one or two years, we are number one. That would be okay. great. <laughs> but, Lofty uh, goals. I like it. Yeah, always aim high, you know, never know where you'll go. <laughs> so, but for us, really, it's, yes, we are in natural foods right now. We are also expanding into natural non-food, um, just better for you products in general, whether it's household items or, or anything like that, anything that a grocery store would want. Um, and then really what we hope to be in three to four years is not so much about being number one, really, but that we are able to uh, reach a, a larger part of America. So hopefully the entire USA and also in that way, be able to service and benefit all of our brands that are working with us. So whatever that motivates us every single day is just being able to provide our brands and our retailers the best selection of products and the best selection of doors that they can enter into and grow. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose as you want to start picking up larger and larger brands, that's only going to happen if you can offer a large network of distribution. Exactly. Exactly. And we have to be national to work with national brands. Right. That makes sense. And just so you know, I don't normally ask people if they are going to be number one in their industry. <laughs> That's not a normal question of mine. It's only because <laughs> I know firsthand those the, the frustrations of working with those larger dis, uh, distributors. And I actually, our part of our business model is to avoid working with the absolute largest distributors for as long as humanly possible specifically because of all of the reasons that make your business uh, such a, a viable business model and something that I think should be number one and eventually knock those other guys out completely because you have like a, a, a fair business model that actually treats your vendors with respect and integrity in a way that uh, you're not just trying to grind every last penny out immediately. You want to have like long-term relationships and um, I don't usually at this point in the show, as we kind of start to wrap things up, I ask how our, our listeners can support you. Um, what can they do other than <laughs> you're kind of on, on the back end of things? Um, but is there anything our listeners can do to support you? Yeah, they can send great brands our way, whether that's their own brand or if they have a friend who has a brand. Ooh, good answer. Yes. Okay. Products. And what, what's the best way to do that? They can email hi at podfoods.co. All right. Hi at podfoods.co. So if you, if there's anyone listening out there and either has a company or knows of a uh, company that's looking for distribution, not currently nationally, but in which markets right now? 
it doesn't really matter which market they're in. We can go through any market. Um, and the brand can be anywhere in the country or maybe even outside of the country. Even outside the country? Well, but- if they're outside, like they're in Canada and they have, uh, you know, and they're selling in America, mm-hmm. we work with Canadian brands as well. Right, right. That all makes sense. Well, thank you both so much for being on the show. I've loved having you on only, well, not only because, but in large part because I'm just such a huge supporter. Obviously, I've said this like 1,500 times over the course of this show, but I appreciate the the mission and the execution, and I, I wish you guys not, nothing but the best, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you off the air. <laughs> Great. Thank yeah, so we're much. excited to work with you, too. Thank you to my guests, Fiona and Larissa of Pod Foods. Find out more at podfoods.com. At the end of every show, I give a shout out to a small business doing all the right things, a company making high quality products and run by high quality people. In fact, the first they hear about it is when they are tagged in the Instagram post. Today's show was not brought to you by our unsponsor, Nani Pua, founded by solopreneur Lori Miller who happens to be basically my second mom, Nani Pua makes everyday hand sanitizer that keeps hands feeling soft and silky smooth. Find it at nanipua.com. That's N-A-N-I-P-U-A.com. If you like the show, I invite you to follow us on Instagram at smallbizgoneviral. We put out some sweet infographics and weekly stats exploring how the pandemic is affecting the economy. Bonus points for going through and liking as many posts as you can, and then go do that for a friend's small business because it's free to you and will make their day. Trust me. Thank you, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates, Worldometer, NPR, Robinhood Snack, and Morning Brew Daily News emails, as well as Statista. Although we are trending wildly in the wrong direction, someday soon this will all be over, and it'll be over just a little sooner if you wear a mask and socially distance from an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours. I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back with our quick bonus lightning round. A couple quick questions. Number one, what is your least favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Fiona, you go first. Well, I would say it's about being lonely sometimes because you always have to make your own decisions and you have to do things that especially trying to start a whole new company that nobody has done before so it's always a little bit difficult and lonely on that yeah larissa yeah it's a lot of suffering you know glorified suffering everybody looks at you and has no idea what you're working on and it's this funny balance where you don't know how much to share because you don't want them to worry about you and it's all these ups and downs And so you don't share anything because everything really is okay. But like Fiona said, you end up feeling pretty lonely sometimes. Uh, What are either some common misconceptions about your business or questions that maybe you get tired of hearing? hearing? Oh, well, I get tired of hearing that, uh, that question of whether we still have the cookie company because I just think it's annoying. Like, you're having this conversation. You say, I used to have a cookie company and now I have this other company. And then they say, do you still have the cookie company? As though it's not a big deal to just run two companies. <laughs> right. <laughs> and last question, as always, because we like to end the show on an up note, what are your favorite parts about being an entrepreneur? 
I would say my favorite part about being an entrepreneur is having Larissa around. <laughs> and of course, oh. all the great things that we're doing, but it's great to have a co-founder who I can share everything with, you know, and it makes it less lonely. Oh, I love it. Oh, Fiona. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we've grown a really strong relationship and I think having a relationship with Fiona, but also with yourself and being able to grow and learn and take a hands-on approach to your own life is pretty big upside. Oh, such great answers. And on those answers, uh, we're going to wrap things up here. Thank you so much for both being on the show. Loved having you. (laughs) Thanks for having us. This was fun. Bye.